In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our text is the Gospel reading, which you've already heard. The Bible is, by and large, a history book. There are some other things in there, like poetry and wisdom literature, but for the most part, it is a book of history. Many of the historical claims it makes are even backed up by archaeological discoveries that have been made in the relatively short history of that field. That means that stories in the Bible, like the creation, as contained in Genesis 1 and 2, really happened. The story of Noah and the flood really happened. The story of Jonah and his three days in the belly of the great fish actually happened. The church including our little corner of the whole church, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, fought a battle over this very topic in the 20th century. We called it back then the battle for the Bible. Some of you may remember this or know it just from your own historical studies. This conflict over the scriptures tore apart our synod. It tore apart especially our St. Louis Seminary, And that battle started because of a movement called higher criticism that taught, among other things, that the Bible's historical claims were not trustworthy. This had terrible consequences for the Christian faith. In fact, most of what has gone wrong with Christianity Christianity today, including the acceptance of things like evolution, homosexuality, women's ordination, denial of man's place in creation, can all be directly linked to denying that the Bible actually makes historical and claims that can be substantiated. The Bible is an accurate record of the history that it tells. However, in fighting really hard against this error, it makes it easy for us to fall into another kind of ditch, forgetting that the Bible is also a theological book. That is, a book full of beautiful allusions and connections to the life of Jesus and other central teachings of the faith. For instance, the week of creation really parallels very nicely with the week of Jesus' passion. So, Man was created on the sixth day, which is Friday, the day that Jesus died on the cross, where he redeemed man from his death. God rested on the seventh day as he was placed into the tomb. That was Saturday. That's also the day that God rested from his work in creation, the Sabbath. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle tells us that the flood is a picture of what happens to us in holy baptism. That is, as our sinful nature is drowned and destroyed in the flood of the font, we are saved through the water that God has placed upon us. Jesus himself tells us that the story of Jonah and his three days in the belly of the great fish is a picture of Jesus' death and burial in the earth for three days. So, if we really want to be edified by the scriptures, yes, we must confess that they are historically accurate accounts, but we also must see 
that the Bible is a theological book, and we've got to read it that way. Our gospel reading, for instance, is chock full of these kinds of allusions. It's bursting at the seam like new wine in old wineskins, if you will. I don't think it takes a guy with a theological, theological degree, for instance, to realize that the opening line's reference to the third day is, well, probably a connection to Jesus' resurrection on the third day. Already in John 2, Jesus is kind of telegraphing his punch, telling us exactly what he's going to do. So what I'm proposing to you today is that John's description of this miracle as a sign is intended to communicate to us a theological meaning. I want you to listen again to the concluding line of our gospel text. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, we tend to, th to think of the things that Jesus does that are supernatural, that are outside of the ordinary realm, as miracles. But that's not the word that the Holy Spirit inspired John to use here. Instead, again, he calls this miracle, what we would call a miracle, he calls it a sign. So, what does that mean? Well, first, from a historical standpoint, this shows that Jesus is the Lord of creation. We read in the chapter before this one, in John 1, we read it on Christmas Day, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, the eternal word of God, is the agent through which God made everything that we see around us. He is the word that the Father spoke that brought all things into being. And so, as God the Father spoke the eternal word to bring the creation into being, when Jesus speaks to creation, creation must obey the voice of its creator. So if Jesus commands water to become wine, well, it has to become wine. It has no choice in the matter. This is why this text shows up in Epiphany, by the way, because it shows us, it emphasizes to us that Jesus is God in the flesh. That God is not some mysterious being that's up in the heavens that we can only imagine, but he actually becomes man and works among us, among his people. But second... From a theological standpoint, this sign is intended to confirm our faith in Christ Jesus, which gives us eternal life. That's what signs do, isn't it? They don't point us just to themselves, but they point us to the reality. When you go to the restaurant and you need to go to the bathroom, you look for the sign, and you don't stop there at the sign, but you go on to where it's pointing. The sign points to a greater reality than simply that Jesus is the Lord of creation. When the disciples witnessed this event, John tells us that they believed in him. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't believe in him before. If you go back and you look at John 1 again, Andrew tells Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Philip goes to get Nathaniel, and when he brings him along, Jesus speaks to Nathaniel, and, and Nathaniel, he tells Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's response to that little prophetic moment is that he calls Jesus the Son of God and the King of Israel. These are not words of men that do not believe in Jesus. These are words of faith. A faith that must have been divinely revealed to them. They had already believed in Jesus before this. John also writes at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. This means that in thinking about this text and thinking about the Bible theologically, especially when it comes to use among us as Christians, the Bible is not primarily a missionary text. By that, I mean it isn't used among us, especially in our homes and in church here, in order to convert the unbeliever. We should use the Word of God in missionary context. Do not hear me say, don't use the Bible if you're a missionary. But when it comes to our use here and in our home devotions, God's Word is given to us so that our faith in Him would be confirmed and strengthened. The Bible especially when it shows us these signs, these miracles of Jesus, it shows us that he is in fact God. And it is given, as I said, to strengthen and confirm our faith in him. You, like the disciples, have already been given the gift of faith. But this miracle is given to you and is read to you here in this place and in your devotions at home so that you may believe more and more in the same way that the disciples believed in him at Cana in Galilee. They had already confessed Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and as the King of Israel, but now their faith in him was strengthened by witnessing this miraculous encounter. And this, dear saints, is the real purpose behind the miracles. They are given for us, for the faithful, as means by which your faith is strengthened. Isn't it interesting that the people at the wedding feast, beyond the disciples and the servants who drew the water out for Jesus, that they had no idea that the miracle even happened? This text, it was given for them and it's given for you. Consider the feeding of the 5,000 as recorded in John chapter 6. After Jesus performs this miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fish, he teaches them about what that sign meant, this whole large crowd of followers. But by the end of it, even though they witnessed the miracle, they all walked away in disgust at the teachings of Jesus. But Peter... Responding to Jesus as he sees the crowds walk away, says, To whom shall we go? You, O Lord, have the words of eternal life. 
So this means, dear saints, that thinking theologically about this text, we come to the unalterable conclusion that what God is doing in this text as we read it, as we hear it, as we consider it, is showing us the ongoing necessity of his word in our lives as Christians. Without God's word, faith becomes atrophied and it dies. But with God's word, it clings all the more to the Savior. It believes in him more. It, faith is strengthened by it. And what is more is that the word of God also opens our eyes to theological realities that are not revealed to unbelieving eyes. For our Jesus, who turns water into wine, will now turn wine into his blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. In Jesus' name. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord.